Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because, why did you sin, Saul? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now that's a tragedy, but there's a tragedy going on in this room too because there are some people in this room trapped in sin and the reason you are sinning is the same reason Saul sinned. You fear the people. You're addicted to approval and you're addicted to people pleasing. Welcome to Resonate with Trent Griffith, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. I'm Aaron Paulus. I'm so glad you're with us today as we dive back into a series called Approval Addict. Last week, Pastor Trent asked us eight questions that would help us diagnose our own approval addictions. He also invited us to join him in the Recovery Center. This week, we'll jump right back into the topic of people-pleasing by seeing what happened in the life of one king of Israel who struggled with wanting man's approval. So I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15 as Pastor Trent helps us find the road to recovery. So this is week two of our series we've entitled Approval Addiction or Approval Addicts. And uh, how many of you here last week for the message, the part number one, did you like it? Was it okay? Did I do all right? Did anybody give a thumbs up on Facebook? Did you like that? Or a a favorite or a star or a heart, all those different things. Social media in our culture is actually feeding the approval addiction that we all have. Well, what we're doing in this series is we're turning Harvest Bible Chapel into an addiction recovery center for all of the approval addicts. And we are all in treatment. The fear of man is with the biblical term for an approval addiction. We saw that in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Approval addicts never feel safe because they're always thinking, what are people thinking of me? Get your Bibles open to 1 Samuel, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'll meet you there in just a minute. The New Testament has a way of asking this question. Galatians chapter 1 verse 10 says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not and I could not be a servant of Christ. The title of the message today is this, Hacking People Pleasing to Pieces. We are going to get serious about eliminating people-pleasing from our life. Now, we need to understand that we all have this particular addiction. Now, have you ever gone to like a, a friend's house or a party and as an icebreaker to get to know one another, somebody says, now everybody, we're going to share our most embarrassing moment. Anybody ever been to a party like that? Don't you love it when somebody pulls out that icebreaker? Let's just do that in church right now. Everybody just turn to your neighbor and share your most... Um, We probably wouldn't get many volunteers, but you would listen to the pastor share his most embarrassing moment. You would do that. If I wasn't such an approval addict, I might share that with you, but um, no, I'll actually share it with you. I remember there was a time, um, I I played football all the way through, through high school. Of course, you just take one look and you see 
you know, football player. And uh, actually, last night, there was the uh, ceremony for the induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, there was a, a man named Will Shields, who uh, he actually is from my hometown, Lawton, Oklahoma. We actually played on the same football field, and, and I, unfortunately, will not be inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame anytime soon. Trapped in this five foot seven, one hundred and seventy pound body, there is a six foot three, two hundred and fifty pound linebacker. It just it didn't translate well. But I remember as a sophomore on a Friday night, it was time for our team to take the field, which unfortunately was about the only time I got to take the field was when the cheerleaders would, you know, line up on the field and spread a big paper banner across, you know, and the, and the players would rush out through them, break through the banner. You ever seen that happen? Well, that was happening in our, on our field, and I was caught up in the middle of a big glob of football players, and I remember as we busted through that line, my feet got tangled up with some of my other football player friends, and I went for a tumble. And as I was being tumbled, I was also being trampled upon by the larger football players on the team. And, and when I woke up, I'm sprawled across the field, you know, like on the 25-yard line. And the worst part was that my right shoe flew about 10 yards that way, and my left shoe flew about 20 yards that way. I was, I was a mess, and, and I was so embarrassed, and I thought, oh, my goodness, what are those people up in the stands think? I look up in the stands, and people are going, who's that? And how could he ever get on the field, and can somebody go help him? I was so embarrassed. I was thinking, I felt lower than I had ever felt in my life. Anybody ever had an experience like that? You're scared that I'll ask you to share it if you raise your hand so you won't do that. But you know, it also works in reverse too. There was a time about five years ago, um, Andrea and I were invited to join the speaker team of Family Life Ministries, Dennis Rainey, Bob Lapine, and a host of about 50 other speaker couples kind of make up the team that shares these marriage and family principles and locations all across the country. And, and we're still on that team. Sometimes when we're gone, you're praying for us because we're ministering to, to marriages at a family life weekend to remember. It was one of the greatest privileges of our life to be invited to this team. But I remember when we first joined the team, I was always wondering whether or not I was good enough to be on this team because there's like authors and, and pastors and speakers of large churches. And I'm like, I just don't think I'm good enough. And I was always asking, what do these people think? And I remember there, there was this time when we all got together for our annual retreat and training time. And Bob Lapine stood up and he said, I just want to encourage all of you. We got probably the best comment from one of our conferees that we've ever received. And he began to read how this lady's marriage was impacted. And, and she was putting so much detail in her comments. She was actually quoting, uh, one of the speakers that actually was there while God was changing her life. And, and she began to share quotes and stories. And after a while, I'm realizing she's sharing my stuff. I was the speaker that God used to, to change her life. And, you know, as, as he went on, I was just like, I was beginning to feel higher than I had ever felt before. And I was thinking, I wonder what the people in the room think now. And it's a trap. Whether it makes you feel lower about yourself or better about yourself, people-pleasing is the number one obstacle to people-pleasing God. 
People-pleasing is the number one obstacle to people-pleasing God. And I want to show it to you and illustrate it for you in the text today from an Old Testament story. 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want to start at the end of the story, and then I'm going to go back and share the backstory. okay? So I want you to notice here in 1 Samuel 15, look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Really, Saul, what? Why? Why have you sinned? He answers this question. He says, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because... Why did you sin, Saul? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, that's a tragedy, but there's a tragedy going on in this room too because there are some people in this room trapped in sin, and the reason you are sinning is the same reason Saul sinned. You fear the people. You're addicted to approval, and you're addicted to people-pleasing. So our assignment today is to hack people-pleasing to pieces. We're going to get after it. If you're ready to get after it, say, get after it. Look back up at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So we're going to see five contrasts between God-pleasers and people-pleasers. We've got two characters in the story, Samuel and Saul. Here's the first point. Pleasing God requires listening to God. But people-pleasers listen to the voice of others. Two characters in the story, Samuel is a God-pleaser. Saul is a people-pleaser. Samuel listened to the voice of God. Saul listened to the voice of people. Let me tell you the story here. So this is ancient Israel, and most of us understand that uh, this was God's people. He had chosen them and grown them to a, a nation of about 2 million people. He'd brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They had gone into the Canaan land, and when they got into the Canaan land, the promised land, as a nation, they felt pretty good about themselves. I mean, they've got security, they've got people, they've got a political system, and then they began to look around at the other nations, and they began to wonder, what do those people think of us as a nation? And they began to realize that they looked a little weird because they didn't have a king. And so do you know what they did? They started to complain to God that they weren't like the other nations. And they said, God, all the other nations have a king. Why can't we have a king? We want a king. We want a king. And do you know what God said? You have a king. It's me. I'm a far superior to king. You don't want a king. You want me. And they said, we want a king. We look weird. Our king's invisible. What, people, what would people think? And so they said, we want a king. God says, you want a king? I'll give you a king. See how that works out for you. And so he raises up King Saul. In the story, Saul is the first king of Israel. And Samuel is the first prophet of Israel. The prophet's job was to go and get a message from God and deliver it to the king. Samuel did his part faithfully. The king's job was to listen to the prophet 
and obey what God said through the prophet. Saul did not do his job. He didn't listen. And be, the reason is because he was a people pleaser. And he, because he was a people pleaser, he did not obey what God had said to him. Now, this has incredible application for you and I. Every person in this room needs a Samuel in their life. And if you think about it, you have a Samuel. What does a Samuel do? He sees you drifting away from God. He sees you making compromise. He sees you not living up to your potential. And he sees you following the crowd. And he sees you comparing yourself to other people and living for the approval of others. And do you know what he does? He gets in front of you and the cliff that you're about to drive off of and says, Stop! Listen to what God has said to you. If you continue down the path that you're going, it's going to end up bad for you. And so stop, turn around, and listen to the voice of God. Do you have a Samuel in your life? Most of you right now should be thinking about your mother. Right? Right? Or your grandmother, or your father that loves you enough to get in your face and say, not like that, like this. You say, well, if I listened to him, I would be a people pleaser. No, pleasing your parents is the way you please God. For most of us, now some of us are a little older and you're not under your parental supervision anymore, but you have an employer, you, you hopefully have a pastor that does everything he can to say not like this, but like that. That's part of the challenge of being a pastor is getting over the addiction to people's approval because sometimes you have to say some unpopular things to people in order to rescue them from the disobedience they're about to be entrapped in. But not everybody likes to have a Samuel. As a matter of fact, some of you think that when somebody loves you enough to tell you the truth, that that person is your enemy. Let me, let me show you a guy. There was a guy that lived a few hundred years ago. His name was Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan, and he obviously invented the soul patch. Richard Baxter said this, Pride causes men to hate reproof. The proud find fault with others, but do not love the person who reproves them. Is that what you do? When somebody comes and reproves you, corrects you, tells you you're wrong, not like this, but like that, it, do you end up not loving that person? He goes on and says this, Though it is a duty which God himself commands as an expression of love and is contrary to hatred, yet it will make a proud man to be your enemy. It embitters their hearts and they consider themselves to be injured and they will bear a grudge against you for it as though you were their enemy. People pleasers have a hard time listening to the voice of God through other people that love them enough to tell them the truth. If you're going to be free from approval addiction, you need to listen to the voice of God and those that love you enough to direct you in the counsel of God. Here's the second thing. Pleasing God requires faith. Believing invisible things. People pleasers, however, rely on the limited rationale perspective, judgment, and finite wisdom of others. 
They're constantly taking opinion polls. What does this person think I should do right now? I don't want to get in trouble with that person. I think I'll do it in a way that makes it less offensive. And so people don't believe what God has said. They don't trust God and they don't obey God because they're so addicted to pleasing other people. I want you to see it in the Scripture. And before I read it, I want you to understand that verses 2 and 3 are some of the most disturbing passages in the Bible. If this was a movie, it would be rated at least PG-13, maybe R. And now for the first time, some of you would like to read the Bible. So uh, verse 2 and 3, just look at what it says here. Thus says the Lord. So who's speaking? Who's speaking? God is speaking, and this is what God says. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. Now in just a minute, I'm going to explain who Amalek is and what Amalek did, but just hang on. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. Devote to destruction all they have. Underline the word all. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Total annihilation. Now, if you're a person that loves God and knows that God is a loving, gracious, forgiving God, that verse ought to disturb you. How and why would a loving God command the genocide of these people called the Amalekites? Let me see if I can answer that for you. But before I do, Do you understand how much faith it was going to take to execute God's plan? Because those verses do not make sense. Faith is opposed to common sense. And if you are a person that values common sense and human wisdom and rational judgment over what God has clearly told you to do, you will not be a God-pleaser. In order for Saul to be a God-pleaser, he simply had to believe what God had said and obey. Now, let me tell you the story here. The Amalekites were a wicked, evil, vicious people. The Amalekites descended from Esau. And from the very beginning, the Bible tells us for reasons unknown to us that God hated Esau. But he loved his brother Jacob. And so there was this this family tree of descendants of Esau that became the Amalekites. The Amalekites were nomadic people. They moved around from territory to territory. They were always attacking. They, they, They were vicious, wicked, marauding terrorists. I want you to think ISIS. If a member of ISIS could get close enough to you, he would decapitate you. And that's the Amalekites. And they had occupied themselves in Canaan, which was the land that God had promised to Israel. And so before Israel went into Canaan, do you remember how they feared? They sent in these 12 spies, and 10 of the spies were so frightened by what they saw. They saw the Amalekites, and they said, they're going to kill us. We can't defeat them. Two of the spies came back, and by faith they said, God's got this. 
And so they, they feared, God's people feared the Amalekites. Let me tell you one of the reasons why he feared them. We find out the story um, back in Exodus chapter 17. God says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, if you're if you just have this idea of God, that God is kind of a fuzzy old grandfather with a long beard that just hands out candy and money all day long, if that's your theology of God, then you're going to have trouble with this verse. What we find is that God is a God of war. He has declared war on sin, evil, and wickedness. And he's actually already won the war, even though we're playing out the battle right now. And so God has declared war on evil. Let me tell you the reason why he was at war with Amalek. You have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and you read this. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail? Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. So this is what had happened. As the people of God were marching toward the promised land, Amalek attacked the people of God in the most cowardly way at the most cowardly time. A time when they were weak, faint, and weary, and he attacked them from behind. You have to remember, this is two million people marching across the, the wilderness, and who lags behind in a group of two million people? You know who that is? That's the elderly, the disabled, the women, and the children. And that's who Amalek attacked. Because of the evil he had attacked, um, th these, these people that God had promised to protect. And God says, because you didn't fear me, we're going to do something to change that you will fear me. And God promises that he's going to wipe them out. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all of your enemies around you, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget what they have done to God. They had declared war on God. They had declared war on God's people. God says, you want a war, you get a war. I win every war. I'm undefeated. And so now that we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Israel's been established in the land, they have their first king, and God gives him his first assignment. It's time to fulfill the promise I made back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Here's what it's time to do. It's time for you to fulfill the mission. Let's see if Saul fulfilled the mission. Look down at verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites. Woohoo! He obeyed. He did it. But I want you to notice verse 8. And he took Agag the king. If anybody's looking for a good baby name, I think Agag is right up there in the top five. Agag. By the way, Tyler and Megan had their baby last night, and they did not name her Agag. They named her Audrey. Better choice. He took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive. What? what alive? That doesn't seem like that was part of the battle plan. He takes the king, and the reason he took him is kind of like a trophy. 
Back in the day when kings went into battle, they took the king of the opposing army and they just kind of held him captive. So you, you remember this guy? Remember that war? We conquered him and so we just kind of hold him there as a trophy. And that's what Saul decided to do. Rather than acting by faith, he relied on common sense because that's what everybody else did. He devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, verse 9, and Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So this is what they did. They saw a sheep and they decided, is that a good sheep or is that a bad sheep? That's a bad sheep. We'll obey God there. Is that a good sheep? We could use this. This could be an asset. And they ended up relying upon their judgment, their wisdom, and listening to the surrounding voices rather than choosing to obey God. And you and I do the same thing. God tells us to do something. We don't understand. We can't figure it out. Nobody in our family would understand. Our friends wouldn't understand. And they prevent us from obeying God because we're more concerned with pleasing them than we are with pleasing God. Here's what we have to understand to unravel the approval addiction. If we knew everything God knows, we would not question anything God says. I don't understand why two people who love each other can't get married even if they're the same sex. If we knew everything God knows, we would not question everything God says. So what we do is we end up editing God's Word. We end up almost completely obeying everything God says. Do you know what God calls it when you almost completely obey everything God says? What's that called? That's called disobedience. Yeah, because God doesn't create on a curve. And the only way we can obey God completely in everything He says is to listen to Him and believe Him and act upon Him. And so often we are concerned as people of faith about what faithless people would think of us. And we don't want faithless people to think we're too weird because we believe things we can't see, and we read a book that's so ancient and old and believe it's the inspired, authoritative Word of God, that seems so weird. So you know what? We don't want to be weird, so we just kind of shave off the rough edges so we can please people. I am on a campaign to keep Christianity weird, and I'm inviting you to join me. I don't want us to look like everybody else. I want us to be distinct. I want us to stand out as people of faith that obey and believe everything God says, no matter how offensive or whoever it displeases. But if you're an approval addict, you can't do that. We're going to live for the approval of God, not for the approval of faithless people. Rather than acting by faith and obedience to what God had said, King Saul relied on his own common sense and did what he thought was best. Do you find yourself like Saul, almost obeying what God's Word says? If so, the Bible calls that disobedience. Next week, Pastor Trent will identify five traps that led King Saul down the road to disobedience so that by God's grace, we can avoid them. 
Well, thanks for joining us today for Resonate. I'd like to invite you to join us at one of our weekend worship services at Harvest Bible Chapel, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. To find more information, visit us online at harvestgranger.org. I'm Aaron Paulus, and I hope you'll join us again at this same time next week. It's our prayer that God's word will resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger, harvestgranger.org.